Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, if you're a lobsterman in Maine, this summer has been a wild ride. The shedders came early and numbers have been so plentiful that supply outstripped demand and caused the price to drop so low that it barely supported taking your boat off the mooring. So this morning we're going to talk about lobsters and the business of lobstering um, with some guests who can help us with that uh, topic. We have uh, Kathy Billings from the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine. Welcome to you, Kathy. Thanks, Ron. We also have uh, Sheila Dassett. Sheila is the director of the Down East Lobstermen's Association, and you're based in Belfast. Yes, thank well, you for asking me to be here. Great. And we also have Representative Walter Comega of the, uh, he's basically based in Deer Isle, but you serve on the Marine Resources Committee, I understand. So that's an interest, uh, lobsters of interest of yours. Very much so. And thanks for inviting me, Ron. Great. Well, Kathy, I think we'll start with you and just give us a little um, kind of background on the Lobster Institute. It's been around a number of years. And uh, tell us a little bit about why it exists. Actually, Ron, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year, so um, it has been here for quite a while. We're based at the University of Maine, but it's actually an industry-driven organization. It started back in 87 when leaders of the key uh, uh, industry associations in Maine came to the university, and they were looking for a better way to connect with science and apply that to their fishery and their industry. So we have uh, now expanded beyond Maine, and we actually have uh, members of our board of advisors ranging everywhere from Long Island Sound up to uh, Newfoundland. And our major focus is on research, outreach, and education, all related to the lobster industry. Uh, We're looking to maintain not only a sustainable resource, but also a very vital fishery. And, And we feel there is a good balance that has been struck and continue to be struck with that. And that's our primary focus. Mm. And I recall that over the years you've had various lobster summits um, as a way of bringing people together to talk about the issues. Yes, exactly. I, I was listening uh, to your introduction and, and WERU and Cooperative Extension you know, believe in the sharing of knowledge uh, so that we can make things better for everyone. And, and that's one of our major focuses. And each year now we host what we call our Canadian-U.S. Lobsterman's Town Meeting. Mm. And the whole purpose is to bring mainly the fishermen together, but other parts of the industry, the processors, dealers, and and so forth, they all come together to talk about what the current issues of the day are and how we can uh, all work together with this shared resource to make it profitable and uh, beneficial for everyone. Mm. And Sheila Dassett, uh, tell us a little bit about um, your background in the main, uh, the Down East Lobstermen's Association. Okay. I have a little... uh paperwork here to go by. Bear with me. Sure. But uh, we were established in 1991 by a small group of lobstermen in Jonesport. We have memberships from Kittery to Eastport. We have uh, 
a board of directors, president, secretary, treasurer. I'm the executive director. And our involvement is we have Lobster Conservation Management Council areas representative. We have seats on the Maine Lobster Promotion Council, the Research Education and Development Board, which is the License Plate Fund, and we uh, have a seat on the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine, Orono. And I'm proud to be the co-host of the U.S. Canadian Town Meeting, which is always a very good meeting. It's a good talking table, and it's very relaxed and gives us the ability to communicate with uh, the fishermen and the public. And we take part in the Working Waterfront Coalition. I'm on the Lobster Advisory Council subcommittee and also working on the uh, council for the promotion uh, that we just did with John Sauvé. And this is establishing the promotion council for promoting lobster in Maine. Right. But I understand when you're not doing paperwork and, and um, appearing on the radio, yes. you're, you're on a boat. Yes, that's one of the things that I can proudly say about the Downey's Lobstermen's Association. Probably my first qualification was that I'm generational. Mm. Uh, I probably come from five generations established. Well, my family was established in Deer Isle, Stonington. Mm. And yes, uh, I'm a daughter of a fisherman wife of a fisherman, and I've had my lobster license myself, and right now we're in the process of teaching my grandson, which is, you know, our future generation. Well, that's great. Thanks for being with us, Sheila. And Representative uh, Walter Kamega, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. You you are representing one of the areas that Sheila came from. Exactly, yeah. Um, I live in Little Deer Isle, but I represent uh, Vinyl Haven, North Haven, Isle of Ho, Stonington, Deer Isle, Brooklyn, part of Mount Desert, Tremont, Swans Island, and Frenchboro. Hmm. Um, and, and you can as, say that that's the heart of lobstering, at least in this part of Maine. That, uh, that, that, that really region. in all of Maine. Yes. Um, the fishermen in those communities to- in total land a, almost 25% of the lobster, hmm. the total state catch. Hmm. Um, it's by far the biggest industry in the communities I represent. Um, so, yeah, the price of lobster has really, really hit those communities hard. Um, a lot of, fortunately, a lot of people have been able to make some of that up with volume, but um, it, it's a big issue. And serving on the Marine Resources Committee, as I do, it makes sense given who I represent. Um, and uh, so I'm really in the middle of the discussions about what to do about the price and what we can Sure. We try and do. Well, let's. Um, we're, we're, I think most listeners are familiar with the fact that um, um, the price of lobsters, at least paid to the fishermen, um, really uh, dipped as low as it's been in anybody's memory. Um, but remind us about the normal um, process up until this year, Sheila. What's been the normal cycle in terms of uh, how long the hard shells kind of um, stayed with us and then when the soft shells come in? And tell us about what a normal lobstering year might look like. Generally, our boat is in the water in May, mm-hmm. and we have uh, fairly decent fishing hard shell lobsters from May through about June, and uh, it slows down around the 4th of July, and then after the 4th of July, the shedders normally start coming in, 
and the fishing is very strong where we are in Penobscot Bay uh, in July and August, and then we might have another decent run in October. Mm. And uh, Kathy, remind us what a shedder is. What's the what's the what's the creature we're talking about? Well, a shedder is also called the soft shell, also called the new shell, um, is a lobster that has just recently um, molted or lost lost its shell, obviously. And since the lobster is um, an arthropod, it has what they call the exoskeleton. So it has no internal bone structure. The shell is its skeleton, basically. So in order to grow, it has to be able to break through that old, old shell, the hard shell, to, to form a new one that's larger that allows it to grow. So right after it sheds that old, harder shell, the new shell it has been forming inside all along. It's basically identical to what the old shell was, but it's, it's very soft. And it takes you know, a fair amount of time for it to harden. Um, within two weeks, it's, it's starting to get fairly firm, but it takes almost two months in some instances before it's firm enough to be considered hard shell once again. And a major difference, of course, between the new shell and the uh, hard shell is that in that soft stage, it's a little more uh, vulnerable uh, when it's in the wild and when it's caught, it's not as easily shipped because of a number of different factors, uh, not only the soft shell, but some physiological factors that make it just a little less vigorous, no less healthy, but a little less vigorous than the hard shell. So the markets then tend to be uh, more localized uh, since you can't ship them. So they're sold along the coast to food service, a lot of the restaurants and so forth, or they'll be shipped to a processing facility where they're then uh, cooked and picked for their meat and so forth. But I can attest they taste just as good. Some say better. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and but traditionally there's been a price difference between the hard shell and the soft shell. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and one of the reasons is the yield, which is the amount of meat you get per pound of lobster, is typically greater in the hard shell. They are at the point where they've filled the whole shell with mm. meat uh, because they're at that uh, peak end of the growth cycle as opposed to the, the starting end of the growth cycle, which the soft shells are. So at that point, the shell is, uh, at the soft shell stage, it's larger than the tissue that fills out the shell. So it, to compensate, there is water brought in to the lobster to, to fill out the rest of that space. So the yield in the soft shell is a little less if you're talking about the, the meat. Mm. So um, that's a typical year and, and kind of explains the difference between hard shell and, and soft shell. What happened this year? Kathy, start with you and then get Sheila's kind of reaction. What what happened this year that was different? Well, you know, as Sheila said, usually the, the, the soft shells don't start coming till July. Well, this year we were seeing them May, uh, obviously June. They were coming pretty heavily. I think some reports even uh, people were seeing them as early as March and April. Mm. Uh, so it was completely off the normal cycle, and that put uh, – some pressure on the market because there were a lot more of the soft shells than normal. And so we had to find a place for those to go. Mm-hmm. And Walter, you were at a meeting last night at Penobscot East, our colleagues down in Stonington, and it was an informal conversation, but there were a number of folks there. What were they saying about what was different about this year? What were some of the factors that they speculate might have been the, the difference? Well, um, part of it was that the Canadians had a very good season. Uh, the end of their season was was uh, record setting, uh, and their season usually. is different than ours. 
Yeah, they have a, a much more regulated set of seasons, and a lot of it, <clears throat> excuse me, is to um, fill in so the processors up there have year-round work. Um, so when our seasons are normally not good, they're open and they're catching generally catching a lot of lobsters. Um, usually their season tapers off before it ends uh, in in May, and this year it was they were catching. Hmm. Tons of lobsters. Um, their processors are usually closed part of June. In fact, they were closed. So Maine fishermen were catching tons of shedders early, and they had literally nowhere to go because the processors weren't even open. They were closed to retool and clean and vacation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a big factor. So there was they, the Maine lobster were catching all these lobsters um, there weren't enough people in Maine to eat these lobsters. <laughs> Normally, they would go to a processor in, in Canada. We'll come back to the reason why there aren't processors in Maine or more processors in Maine in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. And that meant that all of a sudden there was no market um, at all and the price just dropped. What was your experience or some of your your experience with your um, members of the Down East Lobstermen's Association? Were they um, experiencing the same kind of thing? Did they see shutters come early? Did they, they try to sell their lobsters in and couldn't find a place to sell them? Absolutely. It took everybody by surprise. I think in the beginning, everybody thought it was uh, kind of like the big mother load, you know. Wow, we're catching a lot of lobsters, which is great, you know. Uh, Fishermen actually, my dad and myself included, will say, well, who's going to have the big catch of the day? So it started out as, oh, this is a wonderful thing. But then when it came time to finding a home for these lobsters. And, and again, if they're soft shell, their uh, longevity, they, they didn't last as well in the crates. So all of a sudden we had to deal with the marketing end of this. Hmm. So what, what happened to the price? Um, basically, how low, Kathy, you've got a, a, a current price list. Um, how low did it go um, this, this summer? Well, um, I heard reports as low as 195 I think. Um, currently, um, according to the price report that's put out by the Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association, the lowest price in Maine uh, for the soft shell is at 205 and the highest price is going uh, for 260 and but the average is right around 230 or so for the soft shell and if you compare that to last year uh the price range was 275 to 325 so even the highest point that we're getting now is less than the lowest point they were getting at the same time last year mm. and are these uh, is this a trend um in terms of lobster price um or has has the lobster price been a lot better in some seasons well i could say i, don't, I it's too early to note that there might be a trend here but it's obviously supply and demand is the basic you know rule of any market and that's what's happening now as walter said the supply uh came very heavily there was already supply available to the processors up in canada and uh if if you don't have the demand obviously the price goes down at the boat. Mm-hmm. Walter, what were some of the other reasons that people might have said um, this might be happening? What were some of the factors that might be leading to a, an increased um, catch? Um, well, there's a lot of things. Warmer water is part of it. Um, lobsters grow faster and to a point. I mean, if you get the uh, southern New England is having a situation where their water is getting too warm for, for lobsters, but I think Maine's pretty f- 
from what I heard last night, especially Maine's oh, quite a ways away from getting to that point. Um, lack of predators. Uh, the ground fish eat lobsters, and there are, as we anybody involved in fishing knows, there aren't very many ground fish around. Um, those were two of the conservation measures. Conservation measures definitely right. had a, uh, have a, a role. Um, and Sheila, remind us what what are the traditional ways that lobstermen have conserved lobsters? What 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 um, um, custom and law have they put into effect so that we're conserving next year's supply of lobsters? The V notch. Well, yes, we have the V notch. What's that mean? That means that uh, there's a V on the second fin on the female, so that means if she was an egg-bearing female, she needs to be thrown back overboard. Mm. Also, the size of the gauge. If the uh, lobster is too small, it needs to be thrown back or too large. And too large would mean that those are the ones that are supplying the babies, basically. Yeah, Kathy. Yeah, and I'd add that uh, you know Sheila, being generational, knows that these ideas for conservation really came from the fishermen mm-hmm. and some of them have been in place since the mid 1800s so it's it's been a, a fishery that's been protecting itself for for quite some time so uh, the fact that we're now seeing a plentiful stock uh, a healthy stock is really i think a credit to the industry they've been really um, watching out for their resource for quite some time now. Mm. I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about lobsters and the, the business of lobstering. And in the studio with us, we have uh, Kathy Billings of the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine, Sheila Dassett, who is Executive Director of the Down East Lobstermen's Association, and State Representative Walter Kamega, um, ser- serving on the Marine Resources Committee. He's from uh, Little Deer Isle, but serves a lot of the towns that are at the heart of this, this question. Um, a little later, We'll open up our phone lines and ask listeners to call in with their questions or their experience. Um, so the the market for lobsters, um, Kathy, you started out by talking about the fact that um, soft shell lobsters are often sent to Canada for processing. What does that mean? What what, what kind of processes are we talking about? Well, um, the processors will uh, take not only the soft shell but occasionally the hard shell. But they'll they'll take a lobster and break it down. Uh, they'll usually steam cook it, and uh, or they can freeze it. Uh, they can freeze it uncooked or or cooked. Um, they can separate out the tails to be sold separately. They can pick the meat out of the claws and the knuckles and uh, package those up to sell separately for uh, food service mainly. Um, and there are a variety of different things that can be done. Of course, once it's processed, you can start talking about value-added foods and, and so forth. But uh, as I said, particularly the soft shell, since they can't be shipped as far as the live shell, uh, I mean the uh, the hard shell, um, it's, a, it's a slightly different market. You know, the, the live lobsters can be shipped as far away as uh, China. Uh, there's a big market in Europe for the live lobsters as well. So um, the processors... As you said, most of them are in Canada, but there are uh, a few here in Maine, um, probably three, now four actually. There's one that just recently opened that's been in the news down in the uh, Tenants Harbor area, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, But K- 
Canada has really had a head start on us in the processing end of the uh, industry. So that's, but that's a relatively recent phenomenon. I mean, Maine lobster um, used to be canned before we had, you know, freezing kind of operations. And there were canning factories all up and down the coast. And if there was excess from what could be sold, we had local processors who were doing that. And Lots, lots of fish were, were processed in Maine, but we've lost our last sardine canning factory as well. So yeah. we're, we're losing something. Can, can anybody give us a hint as to why we're losing it and Canada has picked it up? Walter, what, what's your observation? Well, Canada developed a lot of new technology to, that they're using now um, to process lobster quicker and cheaper, uh, and, and you get a better quality product, uh, which – and the companies in Maine, like you said, there's – there's four now, um, large processors. They're using the same technology, and 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 a couple actually. Shucks Maine has a really interesting high pressure processing um, capability, which produces a really good quality product. Um, but Canada also has, uh, you know, they have national health care. Um, the power in the provinces, a lot of it is nuclear power, and so it's fairly cheap. Uh, which is a big deal. Uh, they're storing a lot of lobster in freezers, uh, so that's a big power expense. Um, and they have direct subsidies. Uh, I'm not too familiar with exactly how they work, but they do have direct subsidies from the province to keep their businesses going, keep their costs low. Uh, so they really have a competitive advantage. Hmm. Uh, the thing they don't have is is the main brand, which is something that we could really capitalize on. Uh, and that's what the marketing program that, that's being developed is looking to do. Hmm. Any other reasons why we lost our processing capacity? Any any thoughts as to why we lost what we once had? Is this just part of the 20th century trend that we're shipping our, our manufacturing jobs elsewhere because of some of the examples that Walter has said? Sheila, what, you grew up. You grew up in families. Did you have a sense of, of lobster being uh, processed locally, or, or was the market always something that was out there? You didn't have to worry about it because it was always a solid, solid market. One thing I, I did bring with me about that, in case you asked this question, is I used to work for uh, Stinson Canning. Ah, yeah, that was my first outside job, other mm. than the working with the boat. One of the questions we had in the early 90s, my husband and I did a lot of this that brought us into the association, was when the uh, canneries started slowing down, was there a way that they could process lobster as, as a secondary uh, thing for to do uh, instead of closing down? So mm. we have asked that question. I think one of the things that we've been up against, though, is regulations. Mm-hmm. The big word is regulations. And that's because of food safety kinds of things? So what kinds of regulations were you referring to? Well, the last meeting I went to, uh, one of the girls that is involved with processing said that they have to do a lot of water testing, mm-hmm. uh, health reasons. Mm-hmm. It's it's a good thing, but there is a lot of, uh, you know, where the wastewater is going. There's a lot of things to consider uh from that side of it. Mm. And Kathy, you kind of, as, as the Lobster Institute, you've got um, members for the Institute are, who are Canadians as well as um, from the U.S. side. Do you see any comparison between the two kind of systems? Well, um, 
the systems in, in Maine, up until recently, um, they were, going back to Sheila's point about regulations, they were actually forbidden from uh, what they call mutilating the lobster. Uh, and that mutilation law was really just overturned, I think, three summers ago. And so that really put um, uh, – it hampered the main processors in that they were not able to separate the tail from the whole lobster. What was so, the reason for that law? Does anybody know? I believe it's actually – it was a throwback to uh, old conservation measures. Um, they didn't want to lose the ability to track whether people were catching the short lobster or not. Mm-hmm. So they wanted the the lobster to remain whole for mm-hmm. enforcement purposes. But now that that uh, regulation has been overturned, I think that's going to open processing up in Maine greatly. It's going to be more profitable to them. They can get different products out of the lobster instead of just having a whole cooked or a whole frozen lobster. They're going to be able to do the, the picking of the meat and so forth that they were forbidden from doing before. Uh, so, but as Walter said, we, we've got some catching up to do because the processing sector in Canada has been going full force for mm. quite some time. They were the first to get the technology. Although I will point out that the first uh, canning of lobster was done in Maine, and it was actually the first thing ever canned in the United States. Mm. Mm. Interesting little is trivia that, there. Is that Underwood or is that n- another uh, lobster company? Oh, gosh. I I don't yeah, but, uh, I mean, I, I think of Bass Harbor, for instance, yeah. and the Underwood plant there, and they were canning lobster for years and years and years, as along yeah. with other products. So yeah. it was yeah. this mix. It was this it's mix. A- well, some of the other folks in the industry, and, and, and I credit our colleagues at Maine Public Broadcasting for giving me this information, uh, one of their stories, was that there's a three-pronged approach to, to – the future. And one of those is to increase processing facilities, and, and we've commented on that. The other has to do with um, um, increasing the products, the, the kinds of products that we can use lobster for. And the, and the third uh, p- part of that is to increase marketing so more people know about how good Maine lobster is. Um, Kathy, you probably have heard some of those kinds of uh, strategies before. Um, comment about uh, the, the, either the pr- product development. I know the university t- is involved in product development, and then we can talk about marketing. Yes. Well, if you increase the, the processing right here in Maine, then you can also increase the, the value-added component of this. And food trends now, obviously, people know are folks are looking for something that's easy, uh, almost ready-made, you know, right, ready to go. Uh, people are tending to shy away now from wanting to buy lobster as a live product, have to deal with it themselves at home um, by cooking it, you know, and uh, and all of that. So if you can get meat that's ready to go, or if you can get uh, include lobster in a recipe, like now you're you're seeing a lot of lobster macaroni and cheese, mm. or you know, other kinds of uh, foods entrees that already have the lobster in them then you'll get not only a better price for the lobster, but you'll get it out to more people and be able to sell more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Walter, what are some of the reactions that you've heard around the the, pro- the product, in- increasing the number of products that are value-added from, from lobsters? Do you get much feedback well, on that topic? Yeah, there's a couple of really good examples of that. There's a company in Cobbs Cook Bay that's mm-hmm. uh, making lobster pot pies, uh, and uh, they actually had some samples up at the State House last year. They were great. Uh, and then in, in Shabiga Island, down in the Portland area, there's Calendar Islands Seafood. Uh, and they're doing exactly uh, what Kathy was talking about, uh, lobster pot pies, 
uh, lobster macaroni and cheese, lobster bisque that you can order uh, directly from them. And that's a really interesting company because it's it's fisherman owned. Um, it's a part of a co-op. It's partially owned by fishermen. I guess the three-prong approach, there might be a fourth prong, and that would be for fishermen to take more control over their product. Um, and the example of that would be something like Ocean Spray, where they have a co-op, berry growers have a co-op <clears throat> that takes a product from the farm and puts it on somebody's table. Um, and that's the they get more value out of what they grow because they control it further down uh, the line. The, so that so that that's a little bit like um, the the uh, community supported agriculture notion that the, if the farmer knows the customer and mm-hmm. kind of helps kind of uh, um, shape what the customer expects fr- from their products, even to the point of giving recipes out, there's a there's a direct chain from the farmer to the consumer. And you're suggesting the same might be true uh, for lobster fishermen. Could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at the lobstermen, a lot of lobstermen belong to co-ops now, mm-hmm. um, which is a great idea. And the co-ops do a great job of moving their product. But generally, a co-op will retail some of their product, but most of what they take in goes onto a truck, and that's the last they see of it, goes to a, a processor. Um, and, you know, there's room for them to maybe be more aggressive about marketing their product. Sheila, what would you think um, some of your members would think about this notion of having a, a greater connection between, um, you know, catching the lobster and who actually consumes it and what do they do with it? Do you think people are beginning to take interest in this? Oh, definitely. I was just putting some notes down when Walter <laughs> was talking, and it was an inspiration. One other thing, other than the first three, also is the big word was shippability. Hmm. And so when we have the products that we are trying to market, talking with a lot of the tourists at the dock, a lot of the tourists say if they had samples, when people are out west, they're thinking beef. Mm. But they said they would love to have lobster. But we need to be able to ship it out there. Uh, My husband and, and our association has done a lot of research and it is possible to ship a live product all the way to California if it's done correctly. And, and my husband and I have also driven the trucks and, and teamed it, and we know that it can be done through our own research, and we've discussed this at a lot of our meetings. And at the last uh, workshop that we had in Rockport with the commissioner, that was the big word, shipability also, to get the product out on the West Coast and among our own states. Mm. And that also has to do with this notion of, of high quality. And, Walter, you mentioned the, the notion, um, or I think both of you mentioned the, the notion that um, if the fishermen take better care uh, of their product on boat, um, and we're seeing, certainly seeing that with ground fish, they get a better price, or there, there could be a price differentiation. And, and you've got a really um, uh, great spokesperson for for that in the Stonington area saying, if you can get me a better product, I can get a better price, and get you a better price. Yeah, uh, that actually came up at that meeting I was at last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, Billings Marine is sold out of uh, Airstones twice this summer. Their fishermen are buying and equipping their boat with air to oxygenate their uh, their tanks 
so the lobsters come in in better in healthier mm-hmm. and and they're not so many weak and dead lobsters when the uh, when the, the buyer goes through their crates mm. uh, it reduces the loss uh, traditionally uh, lobsters there was a 15 to 20 percent uh, shrinkage and that's a lot I mean that's huge and that's really in the in the end money out of coming out of the lobsterman's pocket because the buyer is not going to take that loss. Mm-hmm. He's got to figure that into the price that he's paying. So if we can reduce that, have a better quality product that, that lasts longer, lives longer, mm. and has less shrinkage, that's definitely going to help the bottom line. Mm. Well, let's see what our listeners are thinking and, and uh, what their questions are, perhaps their experience. Uh, if you'd like to participate in our conversation about lobsters and the business of lobstering here on Talk of the Towns, give us a call, toll-free, one 866 625-9378. That's one 9378 or locally 469-0500. And you can um, ask questions of our guests, uh, including Representative Walter Comega of the uh, Marine Resources Committee in the state legislature, Sheila Dassett of the Down East Lobstermen's Association, and Kathy Billings of the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine. I believe we have our first call. Uh, if you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment please hi my name is ann i'm calling from inland in dixmont and i actually just was curious what uh your panelists thought of the secret life of lobster book which i read a few years ago which gave me insight into the industry and how well the fisheries has protected itself over the years so is that the most Im- impressive thing that you you learned how um the lobsterman and the lobster industry was taking care of the the lobster himself yeah and actually where the lobsters live and how they live and and um you know the secret life of lobsters <laughs> and, but but actually in that i found out that we didn't need top-down regulation these guys figured out better than the scientists and the politicians what was going on so Great. I learned a lot from the book, and I'm just curious whether they think the book was accurate or it was fluff or what. Okay, we'll, we'll get some reactions from our guests. Thanks for your call okay. this morning. Um, who's read The Secret Life of Lobsters? Well, I, Kathy? I, I've read that. Uh, Colin Woodard, mm-hmm. I believe, is the author of that, and he was pretty much uh, right on target. Um, I think the things that you learned, Anne, about the lobstermen really protecting their own resources right on the money. As I mentioned earlier, they, they're the driving force behind a lot of these uh, regulations that are currently in place, starting them on their own in you know mid-1800s and so forth. And even into the current day, uh, I think you've heard us mention the Lobster Advisory Council. And this is a group uh, that um, advises the Commissioner of Marine Resources on um, – everything to do with um, managing the lobster fishery, and it's comprised of a representative from each zone in Maine, and Maine has uh, seven zones right now that uh, each um, have their... It's not really a separate fishery, but it's a separate, uh, mostly geographic uh, area. And they have the ability to advise the commissioner on uh, what they're seeing, what they think would be most beneficial when it comes to regulations or um, things along those lines. So they've been proactive for a very, very long time. Mm. Um, Of course, then when you get into the marine environment, uh, 
a lot of oh, and the physiology of the lobster a lot of that is still a mystery but we've learned a lot so there's still some secrets out there for us to be <laughs> discovering anybody else re- read uh, Colin Wood's book I haven't actually read the book, although I'm sure Colin did a great job with it, and I've heard a lot of people have positive reactions to it. I think it says a lot about the industry. Uh, every year there's a fisherman's forum in, in Rockland, and the, uh, they give an award to the Marine Patrol uh, Officer of the Year. And you know, for an industry to, uh, to give an award to the people that, that their enforcement uh, um, that, that says a lot about what fishermen think. I mean, a common, the most common complaint I hear about the Marine Patrol is that there aren't enough wardens mm. on the water. Mm. Um, mm. Because the guys who take care of the industry want the laws enforced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how about you, Sheila? Um, you've been jotting notes. Were, you, were jotting notes about the secret life of lobster? Or you know the secret life of lobster, probably. <laughs> I have to admit, I have not read the book, but I've heard about the book. Mm-hmm. There are very many out there. Uh, one I was writing down is Downey's Lobsterman was written by Christina Lemieux, and it just came out. And a lot of it is centered around uh input from the Down East Lobsterman, our association, among others. And I did write down the word that comes to mind that uh, Norbert Lemieux said this the most, is that the fishermen have always been the best stewards of our product, Mm. even before the regulations. Mm. Well, we've got another phone call. Um, We'll go ahead with that. Um, Give us your first name and where you're calling from, please. Uh, Yeah, this is Earl from Canaan. Good morning. Good morning. Listen, I'm wondering how uh, lobster is frozen. Every time I've ever tried to freeze something, and I know, like, you can get South African rock lobsters, and the tails are fine, and you cook them up. But every time I've tried to freeze lobster, it's tasted horrible the next time you go to use it or something. So I'm wondering how they are able to freeze these lobsters and keep them for a longer period of time. That's a great question. We'll see if Kathy Billings has an answer for that. Thanks for your call this morning. Sure. Thank you. Bye. Well, uh, if you look at the major processors, they have what are called nitrogen freezers, and it's like an instantaneous freeze. It's very, um, very high-powered, very, very low temperature, which you're not going to be able to get in your at-home freezer. It's uh, sub-80, I believe. Um, however, there are ways to freeze at home that I think Earl might in- improve the, the flavor and the texture for you, and uh, if you going to put a plug in for our website here, lobsterinstitute.org. We have a section that was developed by folks from the Food Science Department that will tell you how to go about freezing at home. There's uh, some blanching involved and, and that sort of thing, but the directions are all right on our website. Great. Well, that's a, a, we didn't know we were going to get into homemaking tips, but there that's you right. go. Thanks for that question. Give us a call if you've got a question or your own experience about um, what's happened with lobster and lobstering um, this past season. Um, 1-866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. And give us a call as we talk about lobster and the business of lobstering. Well, the, the one of the main uh, things that we've certainly heard about uh, over the years is this notion of, of doing a better job of marketing. And that's the case whether we're talking about uh, cranberries, as Walter talked about in terms of ocean sprays example, um, or potatoes or uh, apples or lobster. Um, what are some of the things that are already going on in terms of promoting Maine lobster? And what are some of the things we could think about in the future? Um, Kathy, would you like to get us started? Well, Maine has uh, its 
own uh, Lobster Promotion Council, which is uh, uh, sort of a quasi-governmental organization funded, again, primarily by the lobstermen. There's a, a fee attached to their license that goes to the Promotion Council. And the thought is to try to obviously open up as many new markets as possible. Um, if you look at some of the statistics, the majority of the lobster that is sold uh, in the United States alone, it's in the Northeast, you know, New York and up through, obviously, through Maine. After that, uh, the, the biggest buyer of lobster is um, Nevada. Uh, because of the, all the casinos in mm. Las Vegas. And those two areas combined probably make up close to 90% of the sales of lobster in the United States. So there's a whole opportunity throughout the country, and that's what uh, you know really needs to be tapped into. And that will help with what uh, Sheila said about shippability. It's, it's, uh, it's almost in our backyard, and mm. that's something mm. that we really need to grasp. And do you suppose that the reason for those two areas, obviously um, the northeast is is proximate near to um, the lobster supply, um, but everyone in the United States has heard about a Maine lobster. So uh, it isn't as though they don't know about it, but there must be some barrier. Maybe it's the shippability piece. Maybe it's the price differential. Maybe people think oh, that's just for rich people, although we know from, from records that that's what servants used to get served in, in Maine. So um, it didn't always used to be price. What are some of the barriers to getting more lobsters out into um, the heartland of, of America or to the, to the West Coast? Uh, Sheila, you, you talked about um, doing some experiments with, uh, with shipping. You know it can be delivered out there. Are there some marketing things that you wish we were, we were trying? One of the things that was discussed was to be able to have uh, areas in each, say, in Nevada, California, uh, distribution areas, possibly if people are, are willing to, you know, when the truck comes in, be ready to distribute. Uh, a lot of people, like in Florida, we were just contacted. Once the lobsters arrive, they have to be prepared to have a tank system or to be able to store them. Uh, we have another uh, customer in New York that once the lobsters arrive, they, they cook them and pick them right away because they don't always have the area to, to maintain them. Mm. So um, it's it's marketing, but it's also the handling. Um, we need to have mm. solve those problems to, yes. to get it out. Walter, what are you hearing from your constituents? And as you um, sit on the Marine Resources Committee, um, what, what are some of the things being considered in, in the world of marketing? Well, if you look at the, the current Lobster Promotion Council, they have a budget of about $350,000. Um, last year, the the value of the catch was over $300 million. So that's a really, really small budget to promote sales of that much uh, product. And uh, the, the proposal that's uh, uh, in, it's being discussed throughout the industry now was developed by the Lobster Advisory Council subcommittee and it's to increase license fees to ramp them up over three years to a point where you have a $3 million budget. Um, and we would develop also a new entity. Uh, we wouldn't be using the same Lobster Promotion Council um, with some different, different governance, um, better accountability, and a somewhat of a different mission. Um, a, a lean organization with a very small staff 
and to use a budget to hire people to help pro- help promote the product uh, either in the United States, outside of the United States, kind of no, no barriers um, as to what they would do. And I think that's the, you know, the focus. I mean, the big fear that I've heard from constituents is they we're going to spend money on, or they're going to spend money because it would likely be funded by license fees uh, on this promotion, and it would increase sales, and the money wouldn't trickle down, so to speak, to the to the fishermen. That it would there's so many steps along the way to get the product from the dock. To the table, that uh, you know, the fear is that everybody gets a share, and then the share, the last share that gets that goes to the fishermen is is not what it should be. So, and I think in the, only, the current system, is in the current system, do uh, processors or, and dealers uh, pay into the Lobster Promotion Council, or is it just the lobster license? I, I believe the processors and dealers, all, well, Canadian processors mm. don't pay. Right. Um, right. <laughs> So the, the few in Maine do. I right. think it's anybody with a license to handle okay. lobster. Yeah. Yeah. And and the new entity, it, it would be um, dealers and, and processors would also pay a share. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the, the argument there is that, uh, well, they just take it out of what they pay us <laughs> at the dock. Sure. So um, it's a, you know, fishermen are very skeptical of it. But at the same time, they look at the, the price and realize that the, you know something's got to be done, and they know that the, the catch is, you know, five times its historical average um, for for thirty years or so. The catch averaged around twenty million pounds a year, and uh, since the late '80s has been ramping up to where it is now. And what is it now, roughly? A hundred million pounds. Right. Right. So um, we've seen that kind of change, and that um, kind of gets down into the local economy, too. Um, when lobstering was really good, you could kind of count on that money coming through a community, supporting the, the whole community. Um, now it feels like it's a little shaky. This summer has made it feel shaky. Are lobstermen going to come around and say, well, we need better marketing practices, we need better handling practices? Is this going to shake things up a little bit, um, causing people to think about their future? Um, start with Sheila. Yes, it has already been discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the lobstermen now are putting holding tanks on their boats. Previously, they may have, the smaller fishermen may have used other forms like Coleman coolers, mm-hmm. things like that. But they are becoming more aware of the product, definitely. Mm-hmm. What, what's your sense, um, uh, Kathy, in terms of the, the Lobster Institute? Is there going to be greater interest in, in kind of studying some of this and, and uh coming up with solutions? Absolutely. Um, as Sheila said, the, the, the fishermen are, are already all over this issue. They've met um, multiple times, and they're putting, literally in their words, everything's on the table. So whether they're uh, discussing actually instituting seasons in Maine, which we've never had before, it's, it's been an open year-round fishery, that's been discussed uh, whether it would be a rolling season to uh, you know catch fewer shutters, give them a break during that period of time. That's an option. Um, there are other uh, regulations that that they're looking into as well. Should they change the gauge size again? Um, so it, it's and there's also the the theory that well maybe we shouldn't do anything right now because it, this is an anomaly. 
um, or is it? You know, there obviously the water temperature trends are on the upswing, um, whether you want to say global warming or, you know, acid acidification, that sort of thing. Um, we're seeing the temperatures go up. This year it was pretty extreme. You know, it was a very mild uh, winter uh, and a warm, you know, we were seeing, what, 80 degree temperatures in March this year. And when have we seen that? These were records. Um, so it's it's... It's a question that's going to be ongoing now, obviously. Um, so nobody has an answer right now, but the fact that the discussions are taking place and they're taking place at the fishermen's level, I think, is uh, you know a positive sign. Mm. Four six nine zero five zero zero or toll free one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Perhaps you've got a solution that we ought to be considering here in Maine about um, how to to uh, better um, take care of the business of lobstering. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Here on Talk of the Towns, um, Representative Kamega, what are you hearing in terms of, of kind of the, the grassroots? Are people um, talking about these things? Do they have solutions that they'd like to see at least considered? Um, is, as Kathy says, everything's up for grabs? Yeah, I think so. Um, I was at a meeting in Ellsworth a couple months ago, and there was a presentation of the uh, the draft of the marketing plan. And uh, there were probably 60 or 70 fishermen there, and all but two or three were, were in favor of it. Mm. Um, you know, they were certainly arguing about the the details a little bit, <clears throat> how to structure the payments. And, uh, of course, they'd like to see the dealers pay more and the fishermen pay less. But um, uh, there were – one fisherman said it very well. Uh, well, a couple of people said, you know, if we do nothing, nothing's going to happen. And another guy said, well, if we do nothing, the price is just going to keep going down. <laughs> right. it, it, things are actually going to get worse right. and we're going to fish harder because we need to make it up with volume. Right. So uh, I think there's a consensus, really, that, that some things have to be done. Well, let's take another call. If you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, it's Jay calling from Sedgwick. I just returned from uh, my old home in Minnesota in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and I have a good friend that uh, is a chef in a restaurant there, a very high-end restaurant. I was, I was uh, startled to see how much a lobster dinner goes for uh, in the Midwest, right around uh, $32. Wow. But uh, I, 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 being from Maine now, I, I have to ask, what, how do you get your lobster? Where does it come from? And he said, uh, well, I, I know you're, this, you're not going to like this, but we get 90% of our lobster from New Brunswick. He said the distribution network is just so much better, so much more reliable. Hmm. Somewhere along the line, that has to be changed. It seems, it seems funny that... Uh, uh, well, of course, everybody wants to have better relations between uh, Maine lobstermen and New Brunswick lobstermen. Um, I guess it's in our interest to to try and fix that. Here's a, here's a metropolitan area of 2 million people in the Midwest, and they're getting their lobster from Canada. So if anybody has any comments about that, uh, I'd be anxious to hear it. Thank you. Great. Thanks for your call, Jay. I think we're going to go ahead and take a couple more calls to get those questions out, and then um, we'll see what we can talk about. So jot some notes to yourselves, our panelists. And let's go ahead with a second call. Um, give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead. Hi, my name is Bob. I'm calling from Orland. Um, just to give you a brief bio about myself, I'm a former lobsterman from Long Island Sound. I went through a collapse there. Then I went to work in Boston for a large lobster company 
where I bought lobsters for the processor. Spent a lot of time with their company uh, in Canada. Um, I left that company. I went to work for a wholesale shellfish company in Ellsworth. And now I work for a company in Belfast. Mm. And I also did a quick stint at Penobscot East Resource Center. Listening to your program and your panelists, I agree with a lot of it. But when you talk about marketing lobsters, it's very easy to sell lobsters. It's very difficult to collect on lobsters. And when you talk about selling them to California and Nevada, um, I don't know anybody on that panel if, if you've had experience, but I have. And the question is, you're going to end up with quite a bit of shrinkage. Um, and you talk about marketing lobsters and shippability. Um, I'm all for the lobstermen getting more money. I, I mean, they deserve it. But who, who, who's going to handle that risk? When you talk about some of the programs you want to do, there's companies that are already doing it, and they handle the risk. Mm. They handle the shrinkage. They handle late payments. Um, so there's a whole aspect of your promotion council that really does not address it. And I really think it's giving the lobstermen a false, uh, um, a false sense that they're going to get paid more money for their lobsters. The guy I work for in Boston was brilliant at this. He said the market handles the, you know, the price. Right now we're in very difficult economic times. Um, and that, that's just my own opinion. And if I could add two cents also is if lobstermen really want to take control of their industry, They've got to unionize. They've done it on the West Coast. They've done it with crab. They've done it with salmon. When when the processes were not open in June, if the lobstermen were unionized, they would have gone to these unions. The, the processes in Canada, they're number one. Um, they're, they're the best resource for them. They buy 60% of their lobsters. Um, so that's just my own opinion. Great. Well, thanks for all of that experience that you brought to our conversation this morning. We're going to head, uh, go to one more phone call, take that, and then we'll get some comments. No, that's it. Okay. Um, well, first of all, let's talk about the distribution system um, that Jay uh, brought up. Um, uh, sounds like the Canadians have not only have they've figured out the processing system, but they've figured out the distribution system. Kathy, any, any thoughts about why that might be better there? Well, I, I'm going to disagree slightly that it's the, the system, the distribution okay. system. Um, I would say it, it goes back to what we've been talking quite a bit about, the shipability of the lobster. The seasons in Canada have been designed um, so that they fish for the hard shell lobster. Mm. They don't fish typically for the shedder, although this year, again, they've they, they they seen some shedders. Right. They, they got caught as well, but... Um, they catch the majority of of the hard shell lobsters industry wide. So if you're talking about shipping something out to Minnesota, it's going to be a hard shell, and it's likely going to be from Canada. Um, as far as distribution systems, they're excellent in Canada. There are also very good distribution systems for for live lobster here in the states. Um, the, Bob talked about the, the facilities in Boston. Uh, there's a facility there that is the largest international shipper of live lobster, but they're shipping Canadian lobster. Hmm. So, um, And that's that, because? Do you happen to know why that's the case? Well, again, it's, it's the hard shell. Uh -huh. um, you're not going to get as many of the hard shell 
in Maine to to fill those kinds of markets. Mm. So again, Maine has kind of evolved their own system. They had hard shell uh, up at the beginning of the season and then towards the end of the system. Um, The shedders came in and they were able to sell a lot of those to people who came to Maine to eat lobster. Right. So that that worked for a while. It sounded like this year it, it didn't work because there were many more shedders than there were people to eat them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sheila, what were your some of your thoughts t- to our last two callers? On the distribution, this I'm assuming he's talking about live lobster. Mm-hmm. Yes. But with as many shedders as we are having, the distribution could also be processed lobster as well. One of the things that I've heard a lot at some of the meetings is the chicken theory. And the people out there say the same thing out west is if somebody gives you a live chicken, who wants to go through the whole process to put it in the frying pan? Mm. Same thing with the lobster. A lot of people don't want that live product. They want it already processed and shipped to them in a distribution system in that form. Mm. Mm. That's one of my thoughts. Yep. And Walter, any any thoughts there? Uh, yeah. I <laughs> went blank there for a second. Um, I think it's part of the same problem. Both the distribution system, you know, soft shell lobsters, um, and there is a lot of risk involved in, mm-hmm. in the whole system. And I think that's something that if if fishermen are willing to get more involved in the system, uh, I mean, they have co-ops now, but uh, they really can't. I don't know how the west Co- the fishermen on the west coast did it, but. Um, antitrust laws are pretty difficult. Uh, the Maine Lobsters Association, a number of years ago, organized a, a shutdown of fishing to to uh, protest a low price, and ended up in federal court and ended up losing in federal court. Um, and have, they've been working under a consent decree ever since. Mm-hmm. So they had to be very careful uh, in, in, with this recent uh, with the price crash to not advise members to to stop fishing. Mm. because uh, they had some severe penalties hanging over their heads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so unionizing, but by being a member of a co-op, there's a lot of protection from antitrust laws uh, in, involved in, in being in a co-op. It's kind of the only way that they can they can do that. Um, the, the key is to get the co-op more involved in the process uh, so they have more control over the price. Well, again, it seems like our system worked pretty well for a number of years. And then as uh, we began to catch more lobsters, and this goes back for at least 10 years, and then this year when we had more shedders that kind of flooded the market, we're kind of scratching our heads and saying, does the system we had, <laughs> is that going to work in the future? And most people are saying, no, we've got we've to re- rethink this. So I really appreciate your being here today to help us with that conversation. We probably could come back to this and, and, and have some other players involved. So thank you. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guest in the studio, Representative Walter Comega of uh, Little Deer Isle, 
on the Marine Resources Committee in the state legislature, Sheila Dassett, Executive Director of the Downeast Lobstermen's Association, and Kathy Billings of the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions and experience. Thanks to our underwriters at Maine Community Foundation. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. <laughs>